Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast. This edition of the Moving Iron Podcast is brought to you by these great sponsors. When you partner with Axon, you immediately gain access to a full range of products and solutions designed to meet the complex needs of today's grower. We carry all major brands and sizes of tires and wheels. We specialize in large diameter wheels for large equipment. We have one of the largest OEM replacement wheel inventories in North America. Known for extreme flotation setups, duals, and triples, we have wheels for all makes and models of tractors, sprayers, combines, and grain carts. If we don't have the wheel in stock, we'll custom build, sandblast, and paint in-house. There isn't a more vast inventory in North America dedicated to helping dealers move more iron. With facilities on the West Coast and in the heart of the Midwest, leverage our 230,000 square feet of indoor inventory to solve any problem a grower may have. Move more iron with Axon. Valley Transportation has been hauling ag and construction equipment across the country for the past 33 years. Call Parker at 800 657 4910 for all your trucking needs. At Valley Transportation, our goal is to help you reach yours. No matter how you buy your ag equipment, whether it's from a dealer, an auction, or a private party, AgDirect can help you finance it. You can even apply online to agdirect.com. Learn more about your financing options at agdirect.com. TractorZoom has access to over $20 billion in heavy equipment sales data. TractorZoom's Iron Comps is the industry's trusted solution for transparent equipment values and auctionable pricing insights. This podcast is brought to you by Anvil AppWorks. The Dealer Connect CRMI app with integrated inventory management is an affordable Salesforce-based solution for your dealership. Create connected customer experience and transform how you work. Moving iron in the 21st century. Hardworking people working hard for you and me. Moving higher time and time again. Through the years you'll find us here. Moving higher. Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast. I've got Rich Possum back on here for his monthly rundown of what's happening in the overall world economy. Rich has got a nice little podcast called Critical Point Podcast. And Rich, good to have you back on the show. How are you doing, man? Doing well. Thank you for having me again. I love having you on here, buddy. Talk a little bit about your podcast, where they can find it, and what they're going to, what kind of information you're going to get from it when they listen to it. Yeah, it's uh, I put out like morning briefs uh, for a few grains, and then the stock market, and a few other things. But then I also have uh, videos that come out twice a week, and one of those is rather long. It's a weekly update, and then sometimes I turn it into a monthly update as well. And uh, I cover the stock market and a few grains primarily, then bond market, interest rates, and economy. And then also a little bit over in crude oil in the gold market. And uh, I give a variety of signals from short term all the way to very long term. And then the discussion of what's going on between those signals. Is the market going higher or lower? But it's based primarily on business cycles. I want to see repetitive cyclical patterns in fundamental data in the for economy, business statistics, but also price. And so I'm combining fundamental and uh, technical, but I got this cyclical overtone to it all. And uh, used it for decades now, and it's been developing along the way. I probably got the mo- more most complicated model I've ever had with it, and the model just keeps learning. I keep learning, 
And it's just helped me very well here for decades now of uh, keeping up with the stock market and commodities and economy. And uh, they can find this or information of this at criticalpointpod.com. There will be pages about myself, some free videos, audios, uh, stuff explaining this modeling. But if they click on the various uh, links up at the top, they'll find where they can get over to another site called criticalpoint.podbean.com. And that's just the videos and audios, podcasting. And they can sign up there. They can sign up at the other site. Uh, there's places there to, to sign up. I give out a few free things, obviously, like everyone else, but it's primarily a subscription service who mm-hmm. people uh, who really want to invest and trade and uh, move commodities and do business. Uh, I have business people that really don't seem to do much in the stock market markets. They just like what I'm saying so they can plug it in of how their business is doing, where we're going for the future. Because this modeling will look out like 10 years from now, where, what kind of path are we following uh, to the end of the decade. So, yeah, right on. It's good stuff, folks. Just if anything, just go out to um, wherever you, you know, Apple or whatever, Apple Podcasts, wherever you find your podcast, and at least just get Rich's morning, morning briefs. Just uh, subscribe to that podcast and whatever, because a lot of good information there. And it's not a 20 or 30 or 40 minute deal, it's a quick, typically a five to 10 minute long type of, type of approach to what you got going on there, Rich. Yes, for, especially for morning briefs and any alerts and signals, and alerts and signals might be two or three minutes. Uh, but uh, it, when you get to like the weekly update, it might be 30 to 45 minutes long because I'll take them from short term to long term, put it all in one package. The beauty of the videos compared to audio is they can actually see on charts and see what the past signals did. And then that helps them decide, do I want to take this next signal or am I looking for something bigger? And then my analysis is going to help them with that decision. Yep, right on. Okay, so check that out. Good, good information, especially on just the, the stuff for free that he puts out there is amazing, and his service is, is second to none. So check that out, and you guys will really enjoy that. So, Well, Rich, you've got a lot of stuff uh, cooking around here. You know, I, I, last couple of podcasts I've done with, with Sean and, and Chip uh, Nellinger, um, I've, I've mentioned that if there feels like there's enough tension in the air that you could cut it with a knife when you start looking at <laughs> all the different stuff that's coming at you from from the financial and the economic side. And a lot of it is just because there's so much. It's, it's like the uncertainty is not just staying the same. It's just like it gets a little bit more every every time some bit of news comes out where you think some news would come out and kind of alleviate some of that idea and some of that pressure. But it feels like it just keeps pumping that balloon um, even f- more full air than what it already is. So I guess – What's your as you take a look at just the overall aspects of what you see happening right now, Rich? What are your thoughts, and 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 how do you see this giant ball of stress uh, unraveling? I guess. Yeah, uh, for the most part, you know, we've we've seen inflation back off here, but it's starting to turn stable, and it is bothering people. Is it going to rebound? And I wouldn't be a bit surprised. It, pops a little bit going into next year. But I think the overall trend over the next few years, probably lower inflation, but it is bothering people a bit. The interest rates are bothering more. And in just the last week or two, we've had a straight up move in interest rates. And I was so pleased with my model yesterday. I just said, take a chance. This thing ought to roll over. Well, it did. And it's actually down this morning and the stock market's happy and it's going up. Problem is, it may be just only for a very short-term fluctuation here. So people, this tension is, granted, you know, we shouldn't have to raise interest rates on inflation. We should be just chilling out for a while, let, let, let the markets do the work. But at the same time, they're concerned, yeah, but what if interest rates do keep going higher? 
And I will say for the stock market, we had a very nice run-up this year compared to what happened last year. And probably got the market a little ahead of itself. And something that really got people also tense is what's called a seasonal pattern in the stock market, where it's basically up from like January into summer. But around August to October, the stock market can be down. And this year was the first year I ever heard some Wall Streeters call it the messy period of time. And I've come to the conclusion I'll, I'll adopt that. And for my definition, if we're in a long-term bull market, I believe we are, and therefore economic growth, and I'm not seeing evidence to change that, even with all this tense and problems and complications. But I'm going to call it messy from now on when we're in a long-term bull market because it really isn't extremely bearish during bull markets. If there were, if this were a bear market like last year, I'd be very nervous from August, September, October. That's sometimes the largest crashes we've seen. Okay, mm-hmm. 1929 crash was October. Sure. All right, but we're not due for anything like that. And the business cycles have worked throughout the history of this country, and I find other countries work. So it gives me confidence to to stick with that. So it's been a messy time, and if you look at it, it's, it's been a, a nice pullback, six seven percent, and some people think that's large. But when you put it in perspective of history, zoom out, this is really just a correction in a minor long-term bull market that started last year. And I have a bull market that I have different types of bull markets. I have one I think is going to last all decade, and it started in 2020. And if you look at what has occurred just the last few weeks or since August, that, this looks like nothing in historical perspective. It's normal business, even though on a short-term basis, Gosh, some of these people think the world's coming to an end, you know, (laughs) and I'm just not I'm not seeing the evidence there to do it. So I'm still optimistic, bullish for the economy uh, going into next year and beyond. But there's going to be ripples along the way, and the model should help identify those. So if we think them serious enough, we can do something about our business and commodities and stocks and therefore the stock market ought to be bullish. So we'll get through this. But um, as you and I discussed a few minutes ago. The October, this whole seasonal stuff really ought to end now. September is the worst month of that period of time. And it should be turning up at least by late October. And November and December can be the best months of the year for the upside. Now, some of that's because they beat it up so much in, in September, maybe, that you don't. it's not implying you're going to record highs by no means. It just means right. a nice, nice up move. Okay, So I think we have that coming. But the problem is, what's the Fed going to do November 1st? That's the end of their meeting. And if they raise rates and talk talk at the same time, they're probably going to hammer this market. And my model may not like that and say, okay, we got to protect ourselves here. Um, otherwise, the worst should be over anywhere from this week on into late October to about November 1st here. And I think we'll get past uh, the Federal Reserve. Uh, I don't have a clue whether they're going to raise rates or leave them unchanged. But what, what I've said for months now, it seems as though Powell – if they don't raise the rates, then when he gives his little speech, he's like trying to just scare the heck out of everybody. It's like mm-hmm. he's he doesn't want you to be happy uh, that right. he didn't raise the rates. And and then if he does raise the rates, he'll actually go the other way to kind of encourage you a little bit. He doesn't want you to get too scared either. Right. Uh, and I'm really amazed some of the professionals in the debt industry, uh, the bond industry, that sort of thing. Last time after the Fed here, they just said, we don't know if the Fed has a clue what they're going to do next. And and they said, we find this very confusing, you know. And so this just adds to the tension as well, as well of what's going on. But uh, the bigger factor here, I think, has been um, jumping these interest rates just too fast for the market. 
And I think the market's concerned, stock market, maybe even bond market, concerned that the free market, if the longer the Fed raises or holds their rate unchanged, the more the free market may put rates up to match the Fed. So I took a look at that because I'm, a, I'm under impression quite often the free market does not put it exactly to the Fed rate. Like, uh, for example, the 10-year Treasury note is what I watch more than anything. Uh, the two-year note and very short-term rates normally will go to match the Fed, and it's catching up right now. But I watched the 10-year, and I was under impression this may be close enough to the Fed's current rate right now and doesn't need to go higher. But I looked in the 2000s, I forget the exact years, but the Fed rate was going sideways and the bond market was reluctant to catch up. And then as time went on, it went up and, and came in like a quarter of a point, half a point of the Fed rate. So that's what making people nervous. They're just saying, well, even if the Fed doesn't change their five and a half, if they just keep scaring us for months on end, believe it, a five and a half, maybe we're going to see 5% rates in a 10-year note. Well, if that's the case, you're also seeing 9 10% in the mortgages. Okay. So again, tension here and concerns of that. But at least right this morning, anyways, it looks like the stock market is taking a little bit of a breather. The interest rates are backing off. Bond market taking a little bit of breather. And it's a bit puzzling to me why investors aren't buying bonds here because they're basically can lock in equivalent of four or five percent rates when they locked in rates at zero percent just a couple of years ago. So right. you know, yeah. uh, and, and it is puzzling. I think Wall Street's a little puzzled why why people aren't buying uh, more of the bonds here. Someone made a comment this morning. I gotta I gotta do some thinking on this. It was saying that the professionals really aren't selling stocks as much as you might think with this the amount of this price drop and the drama here. Uh, they're really selling the bonds as a hedge to their stocks to try to protect their stocks for a while, which means that they're just trying to figure out how do we bet on higher interest rates but don't give up on our stocks. So I think that's a long-term bullish scenario, but i got to do some thinking on that, uh, how that really works out here in the future. But it is an interesting concept, and John authors this morning in his uh, daily uh, point of review letter you can get for free at Bloomberg, he uh, was showing that uh, a lot of the bond traders are saying this year is nothing like 2022, which is a bit odd because interest rates have done nothing but go up during 2022 and this year. And yet they're telling us the story behind it's different this year. But I'm not convinced they understand the story. <laughs> they, they didn't offer much. Now, maybe they're just keeping their own secrets for their trading. But, but this happens sometimes in interest rate market. You can see interest rates going up for a couple of years and you think you got it all figured out, and then it goes up the next two years when it would shouldn't it should not, and it's just flipped to another story. It's just amazing how it works. But anyways, here's some hope that we'll see some stability here in October, and if we can get another up move in November and December, I think the market's going to be in better mood of saying, you know, this whole interest rate thing is probably about about done, and uh, and I think stocks can rally well. But here's here's you know, something I brought up. Um, I was doing some writing and immediately got some comments on it. And uh, I think we're, I think there's a chance after that 40-year drop in interest rates, we're moving into several years or even several decades when interest rates might be around three, four, five, six percent. Mortgages can be above that because uh, when I talk interest rates, I'm primarily talking the treasury securities and bonds. But um, Someone did a study on this, and I, and I have a chart of this. i got to go back and do it myself. They took the, the history of the U.S. and interest rates, and they said, you realize 4.5% is about average? And they said, you then, and then a lot of people are coming out saying, no, don't get so scared that if these interest rates are going to stay along this way for a very long time, 
because if you look at it, the economy still grew anyways, and the stock market went up anyways. So this is really just a shift where people were so used to such low interest rates, and now they're high to what they're used to, but over the history of this country, they're not high. So, yeah. you know, so it's just a, go ahead. I got a question. I got a question on that. So same, we had the same conversation <clears throat> in the farm equipment business, right? I mean, right now we're seeing anywhere between, depending on where you're at, six to 8%, depending on, you know, what your situation is. And when I started in this business in 2006, the interest rates were, you know, we were loaning money out at five and a half to six and a half, seven percent back then. Now, the biggest difference was, I mean, obviously the price of a combine in 2006 versus the price of a combine in 2023 are almost triple, you know, if you really start looking at it. But um, do you think some of the fear that you that you see from people, because I'm like right now I'm, I'm in the process of buying a vehicle and going through the whole thing and I'm, I've always been the, I'm going to buy a one or two year old something with low miles because, you know, hey, it makes sense. Well, now you start looking at that compared to what the price of a new one is and the programs that are thrown around, some interest rates and those kind of things, it is, it's, it's a better deal to buy the new one, but, but we're also talking about, you know, 50 to 70,000 bucks for a car. And you're looking at, you know, half a million to $700,000 for some of this farm equipment stuff. Do you think some of that is what's driving this? Oh my God, the, the interest rate thing is just killing us. You think some of that is just because of the explosiveness we've seen in price over of everything? Since yes. COVID? Yes. Uh, no question about it. People are looking at these higher prices, but they're also looking at higher interest rates. And if they got to borrow, man, that that whatever they're buying looks even more expensive. You know, they're just right. uh, you know they're, they're, they start to panic. How does this budget for me? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And and that's going. You're, we're seeing that in the real estate market. I mean, we have slowed off some. Uh, we had a nice surge early in the year here, but generally, I think by the time we wrap this year up at our real estate business, we're going to say things have slowed compared to last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, not only for the number of people interested in trying to buy and getting deals done, but they're also a little more careful on prices. And okay, where, where they used to almost panic that if they didn't pay full price, somebody was going to get it from them. You know, they were going to miss right. out. Now they're saying, let me think about this a few days, you know. So, yeah. but to me, that's just getting back to normal. That's not a reason to panic over the real sure. estate business. <laughs> you know? yeah, um, sure. yeah. And we are seeing some measurements throughout the U.S. where prices are coming down. Uh, I don't know as they've really come down that much for us locally, but we're kind of a little microcosm here. Um, but I do think I've had a forecast that if it's not priced, then the overall volume of business or something's coming down for real estate into 2025. Yeah. And it looks like that's working. There's going to be bumps along the way, but it looks like that's working. And I think the higher interest rates moving in there too. So right. why wouldn't it also impact any high ticket item, whether it's boats, cars, tractors, you know? Sure. So do you think some of that, I've been thinking about this for a little bit too, just over the last couple of years is that, you know, we had this big run up in, in price, you know, on the new stuff, then, you know, shortages and everything else kind of made everything even that much more expensive. Do you feel like some of this price correction is just that kind of back to your point of, Hey, we got this the scarcity premium that got put on everything that was ever manufactured for the last two or three years. Now that manufacturing is starting to come back and there's starting to be more supply uh, for the demand that we see, it's just not it, that stuff is eroded away to the point now where it's just like you said, going back to normal. Is that some of the pain? Because that is that's what it feels like to me. Is some of the pain that we're recognizing is we did some really cool stuff for two or three years and now we can't do that anymore and now we're gonna yeah 
go back yeah. into that. Is that are you feeling? Is that your feel? Is that what you feel? Yeah, about? especially on the manufacturer side, I, I think that's because <clears throat> the manufacturer PMI indicator, which is one of my favorites, to stick stay in line with GDP and the economy. And the problem is that PMI. It was supposed to go down last year, and it did, so it was a correct forecast, but it also went down earlier this year, and that's rather late, and I've had a problem picking the bottom, and I think we've seen the bottom. I think it's recovering, but that indicator had been recession territory, so it was telling us manufacturers are in recession. Well, they really weren't. It's just this whole, everything from that virus pandemic to date has changed some things of what we've seen over the last 20 or 50 years, and so the PMI is just not even keeping up with GDP. GDP is moving forward. The country's growing. It's bigger than it's ever been. It's more valuable than it's ever been. PMI is saying otherwise. <laughs> so it finally dawned on me. What's going on is some of those manufacturers were actually exuberant from, from the pandemic to now. They made some extra money. And even though they couldn't sell as much because of the supply chain, the point is they made up the difference by hiking their prices. Sure. Yep. So they got through. Now the problem is they're, they're realizing if not careful, they might be stuck with some high inventory. They're mm-hmm. realizing the production has increased uh, and they're trying their best to you know work their way out of it, meaning they can't drop their price too fast here. But the consumer has caught on saying, well, I know darn well you're producing more and why are you charging me this price of last year or year before? And by the way, interest rates are higher and I got to borrow. So maybe you need to adjust your price. So I think the manufacturing people understand this and they're a little discouraged right now. And this goes into this PMI, which is not just ironclad data. This is what we did. It does include that. Mm -hmm. But it also includes what do they think of the future? And I think they're pessimistic that, hey, we had a little good of a run here and it's going away. But what they don't understand is it's just adjusting to normal. Maybe they do understand it. But they're having a little problem, you know, adjusting to it. I think this indicator is skewed. I, I think it's reflecting too much of their thinking and forecasting for their business and not showing us entirely as much as the real business. So if this indicator is right and it has bottom turned up, manufacturing is going to become more optimistic uh, going into next year. And they should. I, I, yeah. I'm, conv- I'm convinced it'll work, but I must say it threw me off a little bit to stay down as low as it did for as long as it did. But I think I think it figured it out, and I don't know if I truly answered your question, but I think there's a connection of what you're saying there. Yeah. All right. So let's go back to something you said there. And I, I kind of, I wrote it down here on my notes, financial crisis. Now we've talked about that a lot here and, and coming out of COVID when everything was kind of just like, Oh, we got this huge inflationary issue, interest rates, blah, blah, blah. The world's coming to an end. We're in a, going to be in a massive recession that lasted for about six or nine months. And then we had another six or nine months where, no one was really beating the drum as loud about the recession thing and that things weren't nearly as uh, catastrophic as they had thought, kind of what you just talked about. And now we're kind of sliding back into the, oh, we're going into a full-blown recession. Now, they're coming to an election year, and depending on what channel you watch, you're going to see who's talking more about recession than others are, right? But I guess, Rich, as you look at that, as that rhetoric kind of comes through, where do, why do you think that is, number one? And number two, where where are you at on that scale? Yeah, the swinging back towards the recession is probably, uh, primarily on uh, interest rates that they're just now concerned they are going right. higher for longer, and it's eventually going to break something. And there's, there's always some negative information out there, and sometimes sure. it perks up, and then they move it to the top of the list, and now they become even more negative. And I think they're making mistakes on that, and the modeling is a begin. Was and again, the modeling was telling us years in advance 
we're going to have a recession 2018 to 2021. We got it in 2020. We got over it quickly. The fastest, smallest, or shortest recession I've ever seen. And the model did great. Picked the bottom. Everything's up. It it would be extremely unusual. I don't know if I even can recall a time of seeing a recession at this stage of the business cycle that basically says the economy grows for about a decade and then we have a primary cyclical recession. There's smaller recessions that could come in along the way, but it just doesn't look like we're there. So I got to stick with the forecast since it's gone so well and and, uh, certainly have gone against some big names out there that certainly thought it was going to happen. And more of them have switched. They're they're changing. But those who are staying (laughs) are getting nervous, okay? And I think that's just a temporary fluctuation uh, at the moment on that. Now, in terms of um, where we're going in the sense of uh, financial crisis figuring that, the, granted, this week we saw I saw the most I've seen in a while of that because the stock market has dropped so much and the interest rates have rallied so much. And they're just concerned you're going to break something. It's going to be more on the financial side. Even if the U.S. stock market or economy is so strong, you can still have a financial problem. And back in the 1800s, when that occurred, it then led to uh, an economic recession so severe that you wound up in a depression. And it was the financial markets that started it. But these days or since 1930, the financial market really hasn't been able to cause that serious a problem except in 2008, 2009. And, uh, and even that was fixed. I mean, it, it kept us from... A depression. Normally, if business starts a recession, you don't go into the depression. Okay, it's got to include that financial problem. So this is why it's some on some people's radar screen. But I think they're going too far and not acknowledging we still have a very good jobs market and economy is actually doing uh, quite well. And uh, I'm sure they're speculating that yeah, but it can break the market and it certainly or break the economy. And and yes, we saw those problems in the 1800s, but today it's an entirely different system. I mean, if the Fed wants to, if something hits here in the next 30 days, it looks like a financial crisis, they're just going to drop the interest rates and start printing money again. So that doesn't mean it won't be a scary moment for us in the stock market. <laughs> but right. uh, but at the same time, he'll put the brakes on and, uh, and save us. So I just, uh, to me, it's just not the right time within the business cycle. I, I, I can't even think of a moment when, when it went into a financial crisis. Now, to back this up with a little fundamental information, and I actually just learned this last night and this morning from a variety of sources, they were showing some of these interest rate yield spreads can give you clues of when you're going to have a recession, and then some of them push as far as when you're going to have a financial problem. It was interesting. The consensus was that we're not seeing it within the actual financial markets that we're setting up for a financial crisis. And then someone pointed out, well, bankruptcies are on the rise. Well, be careful of that one because somebody's always going bankrupt every year. <laughs> you know, right. it's just it's a fact of life. Somebody's going to go out. And so, yes, it does fluctuate. And yes, it can fluctuate and be the worst during recession. But the people who took a look, a detailed look at that said, you know, the financial markets should be actually be concerned at those bankruptcies and they're not. And they're the ones that ought to know. Because they're the ones that are loaning money to those bankrupting companies. <laughs> and they said, you don't yep. see that that nervousness there. That tension is not there. So I think I'm afraid that some people, and this occurs with this seasonal down move in, <clears throat> in October and September and August, the, the messiness. You see people, when, when the stock market starts going down, if they had actually been optimistic in the stock market, but they've been bearish on something with the economy, 
you see them become more bearish. And I think it's more of an overreaction. But we will see because I want to also see how does the markets handle um, November 1st uh, when the Fed either raises a quarter point or don't. Yeah. So. Yep. <clears throat> All right. So today we got a Wall Street report that comes out today. And it's going to, you know, I mean, everything is pointing towards, um, but there's not going to be a, a huge change. I mean, I don't, USDA is not going to come in and like slash slash and burn the, uh, the supply and demand reports. But, I mean, as you're looking at uh, yields as they come through, yields are, are slightly below uh, USDA predictions. Um, once you start looking at world uh, world supply and where they're at, I mean, a lot of countries like India, are they're not exporting stuff out anymore. China's buying stuff as fast as they can get it. So, I mean, as you're looking at, at the world supply, obviously it's, it's, it's fragile. So, I guess as you're looking at those – kind of key indicators of, of the uh, commodity marketplace. Rich, what are you looking at and, and what are you seeing right now? Yeah, I think we will see some evidence of lower yields now into January. I just don't know that it'll be a big difference. Um, more it's in the direction. And I just, mm-hmm. to me, that's a positive uh, for prices, but it may be very subtle. It may not matter because you've got to remember, this is the time of year now to actually look at production numbers. Sure. And we, we got more acres in corn, but frankly, I think corn held up very well. Uh, with that USD report last month. Mm-hmm. Okay, so or earlier in the month, I'm sorry. Um, now, where are we on this whole supply and demand situation? Well, China is, I think, a headwind for quite some time. Uh, I think it's going to take a while to really get their economy going. They're still going to buy commodities. They have to. But that doesn't mean they're going to really, try, like, let's build inventory. And it doesn't mean they're going to say, well, I guess I won't try to fight to squeeze out slightly lower price. I'll just pay whatever you want. I, I think they're still going to wheel deal and fight. And uh, so to me, that's not a negative. Uh, I think it might be a somewhat of a headwind uh, looking out into next summer, but it's not a significant enough headwind to uh, counter what I see as the global markets actually being pretty good in the global economy picking up here, maybe not as fast as U.S. economy. But, oh my gosh, look at our crush and soybean crush right. here in this country. Yep. Uh, it's almost, I shouldn't say this, but it's almost like we don't have to worry about China. <laughs> <you know? laughs> but uh, so, somebody's yeah. eating well in this country because we really don't export a lot of soil. So somebody's eating very well and they need soil, which, mm-hmm. which is a good thing for the soybean producer. Um, but as I look at this, uh, these S&Ds, I think uh, even if you could put a bearish stance on it, I think you're going to be wrong trying to stay bearish. I think the available supply, available demand, which I think is more important, and is the day-to-day pricing, uh, whereas S&Ds are really more long-term and the overall concept for the year. Uh, so it's time for me to worry less over what USDA would, does with their balance sheets, unless it's a big surprise, and to focus more on, okay, uh, what's the commercial doing? What's the speculator, fund trader doing? And on balance, I think we're setting up for normal seasonal bottoms. I think it's probably in for corn. Um, if I'm wrong, I'm fine with it. Uh, I've already pointed out to subscribers what to expect, uh, what might go right or wrong here in the next few days. One way or the other, I think whether it's September or October, uh, we'll find corn, wheat, soybeans probably put in some seasonal lows. And I know I'm not saying we'll see them pick up a, a lot going into the year. That would probably require a, a Brazil weather crop problem, which mm-hmm. does, doesn't look like it's there, but you know they, they, they do have some issues over in Am- yep. the Am- Amazon. They have some drought issues going on there, but that's not crop area. Although the more they cut trees, it may become crop area <laughs> in the yeah. future. But um, 
So I don't want to get people real excited about big up move coming. I'm just saying I think we're it's a process to get over the harvest, get the bins filled, and eventually the farmer will have sold enough off the combine or whatever and going to slam the big bend short uh, bend door shut until after January 1. And I think the world's going to continue to go on and we'll need the grain. And so I can see a seasonal lift into next summer. But it may not be a big up move because even if you can show a tight S&D, you can say, yeah, but the market's kind of comfortable with this, a global market that is. But the, the next thing you have to consider, though, is the closer you get out the next summer, how about our crops? And we haven't seen Brazil make their crops yet, Right. So I think there's a lot of interesting things going on, and I'm still looking for the possibility of a crop problem next year to put a little more fire to the upside. Yep. So I'll admit, I have objectives that aren't that much higher going in the summer, but I have objectives that go much higher, and I'm just telling my subscribers, it's everything in between. We will update along the way. Right. But to me, for the moment, you got to think of, well, what's the longer direction and to me, it's probably up into summer. I don't – boy, we're really going to have to – I don't think a recession would really hurt the grains, frankly. It, it's going to have to be something serious because you got to remember commodities do shrug off recession periods unless it's serious, uh, especially if they've already backed off of recent highs. They seem to be resilient. Reason is we all have to eat. <laughs> so you know, if it's a bad time, maybe we don't pay the light bill, but we'll – We'll cook our uh, pork and beans and everything on a candle or something. You know, we right. still have to we still have to eat, and the commodities yeah. still flow. Okay, yeah. so I, yeah, I realize there's people still with uh, much lower targets, and I had those on my table. I told the subscribers about it, but I told them I don't think so, and I'm now throwing them out. I think we're very close to seasonal lows. Soybeans could be weaker longer than corn and wheat. Okay. Um, I need a couple more weeks just to see how we wrap up the harvest there and, and do they really want to sell anything. But uh, I, I, it just feels like to me the worst of the decline this year is over. And, uh, and I just, it just looks like we're back to normal microeconomics here. That's probably going to create that seasonal up moving to next year. And you get a crop problem, then that puts all the excitement and shoves it up higher as well. Mm -hmm. So, okay. All right. Last thing, and then we'll wrap it up, Rich, as you look out what's going on in the oil market oil market has done it's been a <clears throat> it's been a very interesting year when you watch what oil's done because when it was in the 70s it kind of bounced around you know 68 to 75 and kind of it'd get high then it come back down get low go back up but it never really got anywhere then it'd shoot up to the 80s it did the same thing there you know 77 to 85 kind of bounced around a little bit then it shot up into the 90s and it's kind of doing the same thing back and forth but it's kind of hovering in that 91 to 93 range and it's not really bounced around there anymore as you take a look at what's going on there obviously saudi arabia decided they were going to uh get the opec countries together and and, and back off supply um as you're looking at um the various aspects of the oil market looking how ethanol plays into that biodiesel and all, i mean like you start to talk about crush rates and what that looks like i guess as you're looking at all that stuff kind of come together rich where where do you see that market headed over the next, you know, next year or so, do you, are you expecting to see some kind of explosion in oil price? Do you expect that to come back down? Yeah, I I think there's a chance to work oil higher into summer. I'm finding many commodities can do that. The problem is uh, the economic side and the business cycle side is showing really ought to be in a larger downtrend from tops of this year all the way back to 2020, depending on whatever commodity you're looking at. There ought to be a downward bias into 2025. And here again, I think we can get back to normal. 
uh, supply demand, which also normally means building supply over time uh, and maybe just enough ahead of demand that you just cool off prices. You get back to a trader's market where commodities are mostly sideways. So I'm reluctant to say oil is going up by a considerable amount. I don't really think it's going to do that. But it may give us a few issues as we look out in the spring summer there. This might pop inflation a little bit too. Uh, I think the bigger movers would be grains if, if we got a crop problem. could move up much faster than whatever the oil can do. Unless, unless OPEC really wants to really crank back the production. I don't think they will because some oil people in the industry have pointed out OPEC can hurt their own domestic demand, hurt themselves by raising this. And they're thinking they're getting more money coming in, but pretty soon they learn it causes some other issues. So I think OPEC has done all they want to really do for cutting. They're just hoping it stays up. Now, if for some reason it came all the way back to $75 after that cut, mm-hmm. you're probably going to see them cut again. I think if they can keep it fluctuating around the 80s and 90s, they're happy. Okay, They're making some money. Would they like 100 or higher? Sure. Okay. But I think they're also clever enough not to become too aggressive here. And they, they are pretty good these days watching the economy. Uh, 20 years ago, I would have told you they were terrible. But today, uh, you know, they, they recognized here only just a few months ago, well, maybe spring months. I think they recognize this whole talk of recession, it isn't working. It isn't going to work. <laughs> and I think they said, this is our moment to put the prices up. I think they also got nervous. The price had been going down for too long and it might, there were people talking about going down for much longer. I was even concerned that the market was starting to break itself and could go down for much longer. And it was interesting. I no more started talking about that and it was like only a week later or something and OPEC comes out, bam, you know, uh, put it up there. Uh, now, what does this mean to the consumer? Obviously, we're paying more gasoline, but if you look at the history over the last 20 or 30 years, the price is only about halfway back to the whatever the highest price was. I think we're kind of comfortable. It's really not hurting the economy, but I will say kudo at $100 or more. I think it's going to raise concerns that it's uh, hurting the economy a bit. I don't know how much though. Uh, there's so many other factors. This economy is so strong, but uh, to me, you know, if anybody said, well, where do you get nervous of, uh, of that hurting the economy? It'll, it'll probably be if it goes over a hundred bucks. Uh, timing wise, I think it's time to actually back oil off. I can be, I wouldn't be surprised it's topped as of this week, but I can be wrong for next two to three weeks, <laughs> but I think it, I think I think the traders can back it off. Right now, now at the same time, and when I mean they back it off, they may not back it off huge amounts. You may see this zigzagging process, but somehow it works higher in the next year. But all I can say, if they push it hard higher next year, that thing's coming down by a large amount into 2025. And in 2025, I could see some softness in the economy. So maybe that's what's going to happen as something gets carried away in 2024. Uh, pushing things too high here. But for the moment, I don't think so. I think this is normal trading uh, in this type of economic environment that's getting back to normal. So I I feel like oil is kind of high enough. And I was surprised when I came at this opinion a couple of weeks ago of, hey, we got to start looking for a little trader's top here and start to question just how high can it go next year. And Goldman Sachs come out and I was surprised because I've always thought they really like being bullish on oil. And they made a comment they thought it was about high enough for now. And the interesting thing is, I think that was pretty close to where it stopped going over above 95. So, mm-hmm. so far, so far, they're kind of right. I don't know if they're bearish. I, I don't think anybody's really bearish here. But I, it just feels like we've had a nice run up in, in oil. I ought to back that off some. And if it is going higher, it needs to chill out for a little while. 
Okay. And I think I'll do it. So I I don't really view that as a, as a problem right now for the economy, but I also know there's other people that would argue with me on that. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. And, and that's the thing on gold, by the way, uh, Gold went higher a little longer than I wanted it. You know, I feel like it should go back to sixteen hundred bucks, and I'm not convinced it's now going to actually go that low now in the next couple of years. But people have been asking me the last few days here, why was gold so weak this uh, week? Primarily, higher interest rates is the best answer. There's several other answers as well, um, and it really is due for long-term peak and back off. But some of that bearishness might be actually gold markets saying, "Hey." We're going to live through all this. There's no reason to panic whether the economy's going down or it's going to go up too fast and high inflation. You know, there's just no reason to rush in there and buy more gold. Um, I hear the retail, though. Uh, what was it? Um, Costco is selling gold bars, and uh, they had to limit them to just two. So, so people are at least in that uh, realm. selling gold bars. That's what I thought I read. I might have the wrong company, um, but people were just going right in the store and let it buy them right there or something like that, and they were just surprised the demand for them. I mean, they're, they're selling them, you know, small enough amounts that people can. Right. So, but it does tell you people are nervous and think they want some gold. At yeah. least, pe- at least the middle class people on the street, that kind of thing. But at the same time, overall gold demand, I don't think it's uh, once what it was. And I think this higher interest rates has kind of clipped uh, some of the bulls there. Uh, right. Yeah, right here I found it. Costco selling one ounce gold bars sold out within a few hours. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, again, it's, the, it's that time of year for tension. So, well, you get, you get it at your discount because you got that special club card. You know, yep, so you, yep. you get that discounted price. <clears throat> yeah. Yep. So. Wow, that's a you can literally buy everything at Costco. <laughs> that's crazy. All right, Rich, that's a good place to stop, man. Yep. Tell everybody about your about your podcast one more time, where they can find it, and tell, where can they find your writings that you talk about. Uh, that is more locked up other websites. Okay. Uh, I hope by next year to start going back to writing in magazines and papers and get my name out there. I've kind of mm-hmm. been in a lull here for building the, the business and, um, uh, I want more. I want to get out there in the, in the public more. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I write for like groups of analysts that are then mm-hmm. sold to specific companies and, gotcha. uh, yep. some big, big time investors, stuff like that. And it's, yep. it's been fun. I've been doing it for quite a few years, but, uh, I've kind of built myself in a little bubble cell here and it's time to get out there in the public. Time to, time to break out. Yeah. <laughs> right on. Right on. So where do they find your podcast at? Uh, criticalpointpod.com. And again, that's my home site. And there should be links to, I have a different site for where it's just the podcast themselves. It's actually a host company that puts those out there for me. They can find that one at criticalpoint.podbean.com. But the main site is criticalpointpod.com. And they can find me on Twitter at Rich underscore Possen, P-O-S-S-O-N. They can actually uh, ping me there and I'll... Uh, DM me, message me, and uh, I'll do my best to answer any questions. Right on. All right, Rich, appreciate you being on. Looking forward to next month, man. Thank you very much. Right on. I'm Casey Seymour with Moving Iron Podcast. Check me out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Moving Iron LLC. Go to LinkedIn at Moving Iron Podcast and go to the ever cleverly named YouTube channel, which is the Moving Iron Podcast YouTube channel. So check that one out. Go to Moving Iron LLC for everything Moving Iron related and uh, 
check out all the stuff there. She has some big announcements coming out here in the next couple months that are going to uh, talk about a lot of different stuff there. So check that out. Go to uh, go to Rich's website. Check out his podcast. Like I said, it's a good – just if you just get the morning briefs, a ton of information there for, uh, for what you're getting. So, Rich, look forward to more of those coming out. So with that, I'm Casey Seymour with Rich Boston. It's going to be some iron folks. Out. Axon started out of a passion for keeping agriculture moving. Imagine having 100 years of tire and wheel knowledge in your back pocket the next time you sell a piece of ag equipment. To find more or become an Axon dealer, please visit axontire.com. Valley Transportation has been hauling ag and construction equipment across the country for the past 33 years. Call Parker at 800-657-4910 for all your trucking needs. At Valley Transportation, our goal is to help you reach yours. No matter how you buy your ag equipment, whether it's from a dealer, an auction, or a private party, AgDirect can help you finance it. You can even apply online at agdirect.com. Learn more about your financing options at agdirect.com. TractorZoom has access to over $20 billion in heavy equipment sales data. TractorZoom's Iron Comps is the industry's trusted solution for transparent equipment values and auctionable pricing insights. This podcast is brought to you by Anvil AppWorks. The Dealer Connect CRMI app with integrated inventory management is an affordable Salesforce-based solution for your dealership. Create connected customer experience and transform how you work. Moving higher in the 21st century. Hardworking people working hard for you and me. Moving higher time and time again. Through the years you'll find us here. Move.